The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Deborah, thank you so much. Those were very uh, inspiring and interesting words. It, it gives me great hope to know that there are people like you with your values that are in Washington uh, helping to run the government and make things happen there. Well, what I want to do is just spend a few minutes uh, asking Deborah a few questions and, and really giving you maybe a bit more background on the Federal Trade Commission and what they do more broadly. You gave us some really wonderful uh, examples of some of the work that you're doing. And then once we get a little bit of that background and, and get a sense of that, then we'll open the floor to the audience. So be thinking about the questions that you would like to ask Deborah, and we'll make sure we have plenty of time for those questions. But if you could uh, kind of set the tone by giving us kind of a, a big picture view of what the responsibilities of the FTC are, and it's, it's a fairly broad-based agency, but I think that will help uh, those in the audience kind of understand uh, the broad responsibilities that you have. Sure, and it's a great question because given our name, Federal Trade Commission, um, people often mistake us for the uh, U.S. Trade Representative who does the actual international trade negotiations with the WTO and so forth, and that isn't what we do. Our, our main objective is protecting the consumer. Um, I realize that sounds a little broad, but we primarily do it through two areas of the law. One, we enforce the antitrust laws. Um, so we review mergers, we look at business conduct, um, and, uh, and, and enforce the laws there. We also do a fair amount of competition advocacy in Congress, in state legislatures, with other uh, federal agencies on what impact certain legislation or regulation might have on competition because we like to keep markets as open as possible. Then the second half of the agency is consumer protection. And there we enforce about 50 different statutes of different varieties, but our main statute um, allows us to attack deceptive and unfair practices. Now, unfair is a vague term, um, and it's been defined, fortunately, to keep it to keep it cabined in, so that someone like me sitting in my chair can't just go around saying, "Well, I think that's unfair. You're nailed." Um, uh, but but what that means is that we go after false advertising, um, all, ty all types of deceptive marketing. We've also become de facto the nation's consumer privacy agency on commercial privacy because um, because there, there there isn't another and we we through our work the Congress gave us on identity theft we've really we've really played that role so that's um, you know we we cover wide swaths of the of the economy because unlike a lot of the alphabet suit agencies you know about in Washington we don't focus just on one particular mm -hmm. age, um, industry we really we cover all the economy except for a couple of carve outs like banks mm -hmm. talk about um, Clearly, the United States in many ways has been sort of on the forefront of doing regulatory kinds of things in business because we really have a very sophisticated system for that. How is that changing around the world now, and how do you at the FTC interact with other regulatory agencies, and, and how is that impacting sort of global companies now? Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. You know, um, really what's happened on, on our side, particularly the competition side, um, has just been um, really phenomenal in the last several years. In 1990, there were um, not quite 25 competition agencies around the world, and today there are over 100. And um, and this is because, um, really, you know, literally, when the wall came down in the early 90s and uh, economies started trying to move toward market economies, of course, aid agencies told them, well, 
a sign of you developing a market economy is you've got to have a competition agency, right? So let's have the bureaucracy before we actually have the markets. But, um, but nonetheless, we, so we're in a position now where, first of all, we need to interact with the major trading partners, Europe, Japan, Canada, um, Australia, and the like, because we're often reviewing the same mergers. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's just one merger, so we've got to, we've got to have good coordination there or there's just very high cost to business and therefore also to consumers. Um, we also are working very closely with developing countries mm -hmm. because the truth is we've been doing this for a very long time. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. We've learned from those mistakes. Others can learn from them too. And they literally, you know, they've set up these agencies. They really don't know what to do next. And they're calling on us and the Europeans and others for help. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a good news story on the one hand because, um, because the proliferation of, of markets around the world, I think, is what's going to bring the most prosperity to the largest number of people. But the, but the fact is, right now, it's very messy. Uh, it's very complicated. And, um, you know, people have probably heard about the differing ways that Microsoft's been treated on the two sides of the Atlantic. It's, it's, a, it's, not, an easy, um, it's not an easy issue for business, and we're doing everything we can to, to, to try to smooth it out, but it's going to take time. Yeah, there have been some really high-profile situations recently in regard to some of the products coming out of China, uh, and the toy is, is probably the most recent one, and in fact, uh, Robert Eckert, it, the CEO of Mattel, is going to be one of our Dean's Executive uh -huh. Leadership Series speakers, so we're actually quite interested in having yeah. him come. But what role are you all playing in that? What, how, in terms of those kinds of consumer protection issues that are happening sort of across country boundaries, how do you step in and have a role in that? Well, on the particular issue of product safety, we have the Consumer Product Safety Commission mm -hmm. in Washington. Now, it actually used to be years ago a part of the FTC. Mm -hmm. With recent difficulties, I must admit, I've had a couple of people on the Hill say, well, what if we put it back? Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> Just what you need have more to do, right? <laughs> we have a lot to do already. Um, so they deal very specifically right. with issues of product safety. I've thought about it, though, whether we're going to have a greater role. My suspicion is that what will come out of this is that we will see marketing for toys that will say things like um, absolutely 100% safe, not manufactured in China, things like that. I mean, you would imagine, right? I mean, markets react. And then our job will be to make sure that's not deceptive, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that marketing is not deceptive. But it is, I mean, it's a, tough, it's a tough problem. We are working with China a great deal. China uh, just passed an antitrust law, uh, the anti-monopoly law, um, after 13 years in the making. Wow. And we worked with them on it. Um, the difficulty, though, is that um, we just come from such different places and different systems that already what we're seeing publicly in the press and the like is that the Chinese are figuring out how they're going to use this statute to hold off multinationals from truly competing within their markets against Chinese companies, which of course have been protected for a long time. So it's, um, you know, it's both exciting um, and difficult at the moment dealing with China across the government. Mm -hmm. A little closer to home, and we talked about this a little bit this afternoon when we uh, taped the podcast, uh, what's happening in the mortgage industry is having a huge impact around the country, but certainly uh, California and Southern California is feeling that um, very strongly and all that's going on in the subprime market. And I'd like to hear a little bit about, you guys have been involved with subprime lending for quite some time, and there's some real challenging balances there as you want people who can't normally afford mortgage, you want to give them as many opportunities and many tools for purchasing as possible, but yet you also want to protect people from 
practices that do lead to some of the challenges mm -hmm. we have here. So how are you balancing that and what do you see happening in that area in terms of what your role is? Now, it, it's such a great question. That, that balance is a very difficult one to strike and it comes up in many different areas. Mm -hmm. Take, you know, I always have consumer groups arguing that we should go after um, the payday lending industry more, you know, and, and the problem is that, of course, the people who are making these claims never have to worry about getting a payday loan. And they don't live in a world in which if your car breaks down, you don't have any money to pay it, you can't, you can't get to work. So yes, they charge high rates of interest, but on the other hand, they're providing a service that if they can't make money off, they wouldn't be able to do it. So similarly, in subprime mortgages, um, now, you know, subprime has become sort of a dirty word, but the fact of the matter is that, um, that you know, subprime lending has been around for a long time, but sort of new mortgage tools are mm -hmm. relatively new, um, you know, with the arms and the balloon payments right. and so forth. Um, th those are becoming ugly words too, but we have to be careful because we know that some people were able to enter the housing market, live the American dream, who wouldn't have been able to without these mortgage mm -hmm. products. And they are paying them back. So it's not everybody is in trouble. So that's the difficulty. And it's always a difficulty in Washington, right? Because we're reactive and you right. know, you want to, you know, Congress wants to do something and they want to do it now and they want to squelch this. And you have to be really careful. What we've done at the FTC you know, it's interesting. The banks have, the banking agencies have jurisdiction over the banks and the other federally insured institutions, but there's this whole group of non-insured mortgage companies and brokers and the like who nobody has true regulatory jurisdiction over, frankly. We have general jurisdiction and Congress depends on us. Where we have focused our efforts and we've brought um, a few dozen cases is in deception. In the subprime in the subprime area, and um, and we have some of those in the pipeline now, but the difficulty is figuring out people who are truly deceived versus people who just didn't understand, mm -hmm. because our economists recently did a study on mortgage disclosures, and figured out that not just in subprime but all of us in the general population really don't have very much idea what we're getting. I mean, you guys went to business school. Okay, fine. But I mean, most people are signing this mortgage document and they don't really have a clue what it means. And that, I think, is an area where we really want to work with policymakers the most to make sure that all Americans, whether it's subprime market or not, are understanding what is it that you're signing for. Um, so, One other question on a different topic and then we'll open it up for the audience and then I'll have a few other questions I'll filter in as we go forward. But uh, one of the areas that you have some expertise in and actually have been recognized for is work in sort of privacy and information security and some of those challenges that we have there. So what are you seeing and, and maybe even what advice do you have for us tonight, both in terms of the corporate side as well as sort of the individual side to help manage some of the information security issues and privacy issues that we have now with the way technology is being used? Mm -hmm. Well, we've... Um you know, we've we've taken to this new information and technology economy like fish to water, which is terrific because it's been incredibly productive and um, it's changed our lives in really positive ways. But the problem is that we kind of left the security part of it mm -hmm. behind as a society. You know, businesses, um, even major businesses, we've seen have had abysmal data security practices. Um, the government has had pretty abysmal data security practices. Consumers. Um, have not had to worry about, you know, didn't think much. We know we all used to carry our social security card around in our wallets, right? And it wasn't really an issue. That's all changed. And the, our personal information, um, I say to everyone, we have to treat like cash. I mean, it's just, you, you think about how you would treat cash, you have to do the same thing. 
Um, and uh, so from the business side, it requires um, stepping back and having a data security plan, which um, includes um, you know, looking at what data you're carrying, why you're carrying it, how long you need to have it, um, and what reasonable measures you want to take. And that requires knowing what the threats are. You know, what are the common hacker threats? What businesses need to understand that and they need to take precautions. Consumers and government too, and believe me, I've, I'm always worried about saying this because I'm afraid a hacker will hear me and take the challenge. But at the FTC, we work incredibly hard because I say to my staff, you know, we're no hypocrites. If we're telling businesses what they ought to be doing, we need to do it at home. From the consumer perspective, um, um, consumers absolutely need to think about these issues. Um, and there's lots of tips that we have on our website um, for consumers. But it basically is think about how to protect your information. Think about how to dispose of it um, you know, with the shredder um, in other ways. You know, reviewing your account statements, reviewing your credit reports. And then if, in fact, you're victimized, acting very, very quickly, contacting us, contacting your local police department. Um, you know, fortunately, um, most identity theft you can get through pretty quickly because the credit con card companies and banks will bear most of the cost and consumers don't have to. But if someone should steal your social and set up an account in your name that you didn't even know about, that's a tougher problem. So um, there's lots of advice available. Everyone just needs to, everyone just needs to take it because I don't think, I bet if I went around, every one of you would have a story either for yourself, sure. some member of your family, or one of your coworkers. It's just, it's everywhere. And those of you that have social security cards in your wallet are going to go home and take them out now, aren't you? And what is your website? www.ftc.gov. Lots of good information simple. on there. So let's open the floor. Open up and see what questions you have. We've got one right over here ready to go. So. Uh, thank you for coming today. It's been an extreme pleasure to have you here. It's fantastic. Very special to everyone in, I think, in this room. Um, one, I have a statement, and the second, I have a question. Um, first, I'm, I want to say I believe it would be best served that our economy return to a self-serving economy of ideals, which would allow increased self-sufficiency and also decrease global warming by going green. Other is um, protecting the Constitution, allowing division between legislative, um, executive, and judicial parts of the government. And eliminating the debt, which is more important to me, is to have return to fractional, return from fractional currency policies to federal dollar. And that was a statement. Okay. Okay. Now, it's my question. Uh, I found a discrepancy between foreign exchange of U.S. dollar and, uh, and Swiss franc uh, between Zurich and New York. Do you have any explanation for that? I don't, you know, I don't do, um, yeah, I don't really have anything to do with currency markets. Um, currency or commodities. Um, yeah, it's, just, um, you know, I, I'd be speculating. I just, I'm, a, I'm sorry, I'm, it's just not my, it's not my expertise. Sorry. If we have someone in the audience that has expertise in that area and would like to visit with the gentleman afterwards, I'm sure that would be glad yeah, we, to. We've got to a lot of financial you. types here, That's right? That's right, <laughs> that might be able to touch on that. Questions. Okay, let's start here, and then we'll come over here. And somebody's going to have to help me in the back for people that raise their hands because there's a lot of lights in our space, so it's a little hard to see those of you in the back. Uh, I've also enjoyed very much uh, what you've been saying, and I apologize in advance if this is outside your your immediate sphere. But uh, either last year or Linda helped me, maybe the year before. Ted Waite spoke with us. 
two years ago. Two years ago. Two years ago. Ted, Ted had founded Gateway Computer in his barn, and it was a very interesting story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we chatted with him a little bit afterward, and I asked him if uh, what his vision is for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out two things. And, and the first, I think, was kind of obvious. It was nanotechnology, and we all know that. But then he, he said something that was a little chilling to me, and I'd like to get your, your take on this. He said, the United States doesn't make anything or build anything any better than anyone else in the world anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of what we build and make is more expensive and more time-consuming and more encumbered than other places in the world. Um, but he said, if we don't figure out a way to protect our intellectual property, we have a serious, serious problem. And I know we've sort of been addressing individual privacy, individual information control. Can you comment a little bit on his statement? Mm -hmm. uh, because you are a federal agency, and it, 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 this is the sort of our federal identity that's, that's under attack here. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it is a great question. Um, I mean, there's, there's, you know, he's right. I mean, if you look at the, you know, at the amount of wealth today that's in, that's in hard assets versus, um, versus intellectual property assets. I mean, you know, obviously it's a huge change. It's a tremendous challenge for competition enforcers. You know, as we're, as we're trying to predict what mergers might do and the like. But we, um, you know, I, I think. I mean, I don't know that I could give such a chilling um, prediction as that. But I do think um, that the protection of intellectual property has in the world has become far more important um, than ever before. And I do think that part of the difficulty we have is we have, you know, because we have more open markets um, in this country and, you know, really truly, um, you know, he can start this, this business in a barn. I mean, he's not the only one who has a story like that. It's really, it's really refreshing. You still can do those things in the United States of America. Um, but the problem is what we're seeing in other countries like China is very little respect for intellectual property. And so people are wanting to do deals in China, and the price for doing that deal is the Chinese government saying you have to share this intellectual property with these competitors in order to be able to do it. Um, so I don't think that's a positive tra trend in any way, shape, or form. Anytime you have a system that protects intellectual property, sure, there, you know, you're going to, you're going to um, lack some competition in the short run. Um, but in the long run, what you do is you incent developers in all fields, like pharma, like, um, like computers, biotech, all of those areas, to, you know, to come up with something and know that they'll have a chance, um, whether it's to patent it or, or what have you. So um, I don't disagree that it's a big problem. It's a big problem around the world. Um, I think we're more highly protective of our intellectual property than most countries. And it's something that we're really going to struggle with um, and are struggling with um, um, around the world, particularly with the Chinese. We had a question right here. The question is who makes the final decision on what cases uh, the FTC takes or doesn't take? Okay. Um, well, I'm the chairman. I'm one of five commissioners. Um, so um, when we decide which cases to take, we get recommendations from our staff. And we have three bureaus. We have a Bureau of Competition, a Bureau of Consumer Protection, and a Bureau of Economics, which has 70 PhD economists who support the other two bureaus. They give us recommendations on bringing cases. And um, in order to bring a case, we need three votes. We need the votes of three commissioners. Um, so 
I obviously lead the charge in, in making those decisions, but ultimately, if I want to bring a case and agree with the staff we should bring a case, I need to make sure I have two other votes. Um, um, so we do have a fair amount of prosecutorial discretion. Okay. Got a question there, and then we'll come back up here. Yes. I'd like to add my comments as well that uh, we're so appreciative of your coming today. It's very educational. question I have has to do with the uh, competitiveness of the uh, U.S. economy and the U.S. businesses. Since the FTC is, is a regulatory body and in general puts uh, restrictions on companies, I mean, that's what you do is say you can't do this or you must do this, how do you view uh, your impact on the competitiveness of us versus countries, uh, companies across the country, uh, I'm sorry, around the world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. Um, for, first of all, um, and I always tell the staff we have to stay in this mindset that our job is to protect competition, not just bring a bunch of antitrust cases. So if, if you're in that mindset, I, you know, I think it makes a difference in terms of how you think about it. I mean, there isn't any question that, um, you know, I think the evidence is just stark that in countries in which domestic companies have been forced to compete and compete fairly and have not been protected by their governments, they are far better able to compete in the global economy. Um, if you look at um, a study that the McKinsey Global Institute did, and they did it on various countries and their productivity, and they did one on Japan, that showed industries like autos and steel, which Japan had opened up to foreign competition, were performing at productivity levels at 130% of the United States industries. Whereas the, the service sector in Japan, which has long been guarded and protected, um, was functioning at levels of productivity at 50% of the level of the United States. So there's just a lot of evidence out there. So the way to be competitive in the world is to have to compete at home. So what we're endeavoring to do is not add on heavy layers of regulation. And I admit, you know, it's, it's tricky. Um, but, um, but through our competition cases, you know, to bring the right cases in which, in fact, the conduct is anti-competitive, not aggressive, good, competitive conduct, but anti-competitive, which I'll grant you is not an easy thing to figure out, but that's our challenge. On the consumer protection side, the key is to bring the cases, um, and we do some passing of regulations on that side of the house, in which consumers are genuinely being harmed in a way that they couldn't reasonably avoid. So we're endeavoring not to be too patronizing to consumers and not to try to protect them from the forces of the market or their own bad choices, which we all make, but in places where they're truly being harmed. So they're being truly defrauded um, by liars and cheats, and you know there's plenty of those out there in, in the marketplace. Um, the advertising is deceptive. Um, or in the data security cases we've brought, for example, where um, a consumer can't go into your business and give a credit card to buy something and say, let me negotiate with you how you're going to protect this credit card number for me, right? I mean, we can't do that on an individual basis, and it would be highly inefficient. So what we've done is we've brought cases under our authority in which we are, we are you know, making businesses who had abysmal practices and consumers suffered for it, um, you know, develop reasonable plans. So we really try to stay away from the heavy regulation. There's no question that today the concern in U.S. business is that things like, um, uh, uh, 
what's the Sarbanes. 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 Oxley. How could I forget? You know, thing are making us less competitive in the world. I think we have to. I think we have to take a look at that. If I thought our antitrust um, laws were so oppressive, we were having that problem, I'd take a strong look at it. Today, though, we're more concerned about the antitrust laws in Europe and Korea and Japan having a having a um, an effect on our competitiveness and 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 not our own. I think. Warren, you had a question. Yes, I think this is all more generic than directly related to the specific FTC um, overview. But you talked about how politics really has no place in law. Um, however, as we know from Washington, there's certainly no shortage of it. <laughs> and that uh, there's a great need for ethics, and we seem to have a big shortage of it. And uh, it was marked recently to see how Alan Greenspan has received a lot of criticism of late for his critique of the administration, um, certain decisions while he was in office but didn't speak of them at the time. So the question uh, for someone sitting in that type of chair, the chair you're in, how do you reconcile your own conscience or doing the right thing with keeping your job serving at the pleasure of others and becoming uh, a new chapter, say, in an updated version of Profiles in Courage? Well, um, I, just to make sure, and I know this is what you referred to, but I said politics has no place in law enforcement. In other words, when you're making a law enforcement decision, you need to make it um, based on the facts and the law and not worrying about who's lobbying you to do each of those things. Obviously, lobbying and the like has its place um, on Capitol Hill. That's, that's, um, that's democracy in action. Um, um, for me, um, there's a couple of things. One, um, you should know that I, um, I head up an independent agency. Um, so um, as a commissioner, I can't be removed. Um, I think it's like some word like malfeasance or something, but it's never happened in the history of the agency. So in other words, if um, you know, President Bush appointed me, the Senate um, confirmed me, but if they were unhappy with my work, um, I, I could be de-designated as chairman because the president has that option, but they couldn't take me away as a as a commissioner. Um, so that's 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 different from you know the cabinet members and and, and so on. Um, uh, but but that's not what motivates me. Um, you know, my view is that yes, we're an independent agency. I value that independence. But the truth of the matter is, um, when it comes to law enforcement, despite what you may hear, I don't see the White House exerting all that much influence. Um, over most agencies anyway. They could if they wanted to. I mean, they're allowed. That's part of the system. But the truth is that, that they don't. And there's, there's a fair amount of independence that agencies like the Justice Department have. In all my years of the Justice Department, we never once had someone from the White House say, you should bring this case and not this case, whatever. I mean, they, they, they didn't want to even tell us what to do. So, you know, I think, I think that's overall a good thing. But really, I mean, you know, it's, it's just all what motivates you as individuals. You know, I, I've never had any political ambition. I mean, that's really the truth. It's, it's hard to imagine because I'm in this job. And I, believe me, I sometimes look and say, like, how exactly did this happen? Because I hated politics so much. And here I am doing this. And sometimes I think you're set up for the greatest challenge. You know, you, you end up there because it's what you're most terrified of, maybe. But, um, but uh, you know, I guess because I don't have any political ambitions, um, um, and if this is if this is the last job I ever hold in government, um, that'll be just fine with me. I've loved it. It's been great. But um, it's just it's sort of um, liberating. 
you know, you don't, you just don't worry as much. I mean, if you're, I understand if you're getting reelected, you want to get reelected and so forth. There's certain forces on you. There's just no two ways about it. We're all human. I'm human too. I stumble. Believe me. I hope I made that point clear. But I don't. Um, I'm not worried about whether Senator so and so, you know, is mad at me because I've told him that gasoline prices are rising because we're using too darn much gasoline. Um, and not because of something nefarious, and that makes people mad when I say it, and they want me to say that we have a magic bullet, and then I can go sue the oil companies, and then it'll all be, we'll all live happily ever after. You know, that's not the case. It's not true, so I'm not going to say it. It makes people mad, but I just, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not worried about that. And I don't, you know, again, it doesn't make. I'm not, I'm not better than others. I just have a different, a different motivation, um, and um, and I think being, I think it's one of the strengths of our system is that people go in and out of government and I actually think that's a positive thing because you get people with different incentives. But the one thing I just want to make sure I stress with you on this point and I should have said it in my prepared remarks, you know, the majority of people who work in the government are trying really hard to do the right thing. That's what I have found with people I've worked with. It's, I mean really and truly, you're not going to hear, you're not going to see a headline, you know, in the LA paper that says, you know, today government official acted ethically and with, you know, heart in right place. I mean, you know, that's not going to make the headlines. And yet, you know, the, the staff I talked to you about, the people who are there in the trenches, I mean, you know, there's just a lot of people, people who could do something else making a lot more money and they're motivated by something else. It's, and it's not necessarily right or wrong. Making money's fine with me too. But there's a lot of really terrific people and unfortunately just like in business just like anywhere else you know you hear about the bad apples and that's um, and that and you know and that's um, that then gets us all sort of depressed about the situation but there's a lot of good people in Washington. Deborah, I want to kind of conclude with just a couple of questions that we talked a little bit about earlier this evening but you have about a year left on your term as chairman of the Federal Trade Commission <clears throat> and so I'd like for you to we'll kind of close out with you talking about what you uh, wish you could have done that you didn't do or something you wish you'd made more progress with th than you have in the time there. And then second, what you're most proud of in your tenure, what you see maybe potentially as the legacy that your leadership will leave with the FTC. Yeah, um, I think I told you this afternoon that I'm convinced that when I go, my to-do list will be longer than it was when I started. Um, and you know that's just that's the way it goes but we have these cycles which I said I think are really healthy in government and it'll be great if I leave a pipeline of good work mm -hmm. for my um, successor. Um, I wish on the antitrust side um, that I had more time to sort out um, an issue we're having both domestically and globally which is how do you treat um, successful firms with really large market shares. It's you know it's the Microsoft issue it's you know right now in Europe um, Intel's under attack Qualcomm um, and and it's it's um, you know it's very it's very difficult for any trust enforcers to sort out the um, aggressive um, but very but but quite competitive conduct from anti-competitive conduct because when you look at them they often look the same mm -hmm. and they might have the same results for consumers and so it's a it's a um, th that's very tough and the whole world is struggling with this because you know we have lots of successful companies um, who, um, you know, I'm not opining on any one of them because some complaint may come before me, but, you know, we do have a lot of companies who reach their success the old-fashioned way. The problem around the world is that 
is that we've, you know, you've got a world shifting from state-run economies and businesses over to now trying to have a market economy. And how do you break down the dominance that those formerly state-run firms have? So the whole world is struggling with this, and um, we're trying to do some work on it. We, together with the Justice Department, had a series of public hearings um, last year over the course of 11 months. We're going to put out a report. We're going to talk about how we think current, what we think current enforcement makes sense. But as the recent sort of divergence between the U.S. and Europe on Microsoft shows, you know, we're not there yet, and 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 companies around the other agencies around the world are also. Um, attacking these large these large companies, and sometimes in ways that we actually think are counterproductive, punishing success as opposed to um, punishing exclusionary conduct. So that that's an area where I think I think we're going to make some progress, mm -hmm. but I would like to have made I would like to have made more on the consumer protection side. You know, um, it's it's really really tough. It, you know, all these fraud cases we do. Mm -hmm. sure. It's like if anyone gardens, it's like you know when you pull a weed. I mean, three more weeds are springing back. I am never going to feel like we put as many fraudsters out of business as I wanted to. Um, but that's the you know that's the issue with limited resources right. and. You do you do what you can, and you try to get the really bad ones. Um, what I'm most proud of, um, a couple of things. One is we've truly stepped up um, uh, referring the really bad guys I was just talking about um, to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. And we've had an enormous number of our defendants, because we only do civil prosecutions, mm -hmm. where we put them out of business, we take their money back, we give it to consumers, and the Justice Department is putting them in jail. And that is enormously satisfying to me that we've done that. I talked to you about the Childhood Obesity Project. I'm proud right. of that. And the data security work um, that we've done, I am, I am pleased with. We, you know, Congress has been struggling with what kind of standards they're going to put in place um, ultimately, and I think they probably will pass some legislation. But while they've been talking about this for three years, we've gone out and we've, and we've brought cases and we've helped business to set some standards. Um, which they're now following. We've done a lot of business education, which mostly affects small to medium-sized businesses, although it's there for large businesses as well. And I'm proud of that because I think, um, you know, I think that's going to make a difference as we as a nation try to build a better culture of security for our information. Wonderful. Now, I can't leave tonight without knowing how you managed to fit in that wedding in the midst of the Microsoft negotiations. You just kind of laid that out there, and I just really want to know how you managed that. Well, it really, it really was so funny because I, you know, I left the negotiating table. I went off. I got married. I actually went to Hawaii. The Microsoft lawyers, I kid you not, volunteered to come to Hawaii. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. Um, and uh, and I and I went off. And the truth is, you know, the judge gave us five weeks to negotiate. Do you really think that any real negotiation went on in that first two weeks? I mean, anybody who's ever negotiated knows that the real stuff was later. And um, and so, um, you know, I got back from Hawaii on a uh, on a Saturday evening and Sunday morning. I went back into the negotiating chair and did it for the next uh, next few weeks of my life with with little sleep. But hey, I was high on life at that point, so it was just <laughs> it, it was just well. fine. <laughs> That's great. Yes. That's great. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for your time. It's been fabulous getting to know you and having you share with us here. And uh, you know, again, as I said, it's uh, it's 
wonderful to know people with the kind of value system you have and the integrity that you have serving in that capacity. And it's certainly representative of the what we're trying to do here in terms of developing leaders that think like that and, and conduct themselves like that. So thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. The last thing I want to do as we close, I want to, Faye, would you come up here, please, really quick? I wanted to introduce Faye McClure to you. Many of you have met Faye before. She's with Farmers Insurance Group, and Farmers uh, has sponsored our D Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Now this is the third year yes. that you have done that. And so I want you to know Faye, and I want you to thank Faye and Farmers for uh, just the wonderful support they provide us and how much a part of this and a partner they are in this with us. So thank, thank you, you so much, Faye. Thank you all so much for being here. It has been wonderful having you, wonderful having you, Deborah, and we hope to see you on November 6th if you can make it to hear Andy Bird of Walt Disney Company or on November 8th for the uh, Alumni Sharing Knowledge Reception right here in Orange County. So have a safe drive home and a good evening.